Well, I was uh, particularly pleased when I was asked tonight to introduce our speaker, and I was pleased on, on two counts. The first is that I'm a great admirer of uh, Dr. Simon's work, and the second is that it's always a pleasure for me to go anywhere in this great country of ours or overseas and meet and greet and introduce a fellow naval officer. So uh, it's with real pleasure tonight that I bring to you Dr. Simons, who is currently a member of the faculty of the United States Naval War, uh, United States Naval Academy in, uh, in Annapolis. He's a former member of the faculty of the United States Naval War College. He is, of course, best known to you, perhaps, as the author of several books, Stonewall of the West, Gettysburg, a Battlefield Atlas, and Joseph E. Johnston, a Civil War Biography, and most recently, Confederate Al uh, Admiral, The Life and Wars of Franklin Buchanan. A native of the state of California, he earned an undergraduate degree at UCLA and completed graduate and postgraduate studies at the University of Florida, where he earned his doctoral degree. Dr. Simons uh, joined the Naval Academy faculty in 1976, and in the, uh, in the years that followed, he distinguished himself by both his outstanding scholarship and his remarkable interest in all phases of the American Civil War. He's been widely praised and he's been recognized for his contribution to the study and under our understanding of that particular era. He's the recipient of the Naval Academy Excellence Award for Research, the Cunningham Prize for Literary Achievement, and the John Lyman Book Prize. In addition, he was also a finalist for the Lincoln Prize in 1993 with his absolutely splendid biography of Joe Johnston. Tonight, however, he will be taking us back in time, turning back the pages of history to August of 1864. Please join me, please, uh, please join me tonight in welcoming uh, our guest speaker for his presentation tonight on the Battle of Mobile Bay, Dr. Craig Simons. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ralph. I appreciate that. I appreciate very much being here in Chicago tonight. Uh, I thought Chuck might mention in some of his comments earlier what a, a difficult road it's been uh, for us to get together one way or another. We've had conversations dating back some 18 months now trying to find a date when I could make it out here and when you had room uh, uh, to host me. And it almost didn't happen again. We. Uh, we flew out of Baltimore this afternoon. It turns out to be not only a Friday afternoon, busy as always, but also it's the Friday before spring break for all of uh, Maryland's colleges, including the Naval Academy, which begins spring break on Monday. I thought I had them beat because we flew out at 2.30, and I know the midshipmen weren't allowed to leave the yard, which is what we call the campus at the United States Naval Academy until 15.30, which is 3.30 in military time. So I thought, well, I've got a full hour on these kids, so before they flood the gates, we'll manage to get out of town. But a lot of the other colleges don't have those uh, restrictions, so it was pretty crowded. We got to the airport, and the blue lot was filled, and the green lot was filled, and those are the only two parking spaces for long-term parking in Baltimore, until we ran into somebody who informed us we were going to get to park in the pink lot. And, and I particularly enjoy thinking about what all those midshipmen are going to say when they get to the airport and are told they have to park in the pink lot. They may decide not to go, I think, rather than do that. I'm not sure. I'm uh, going to talk to you tonight about uh, Franklin Buchanan, old tarantula. No, that's not right. Uh, old Buck. Um, hardly a, a household name, even among serious students of the Civil War. He did command two of the Confederacy's most famous warships, both ironclads, the CSS Virginia, formerly the Merrimack, 
and of course the CSS Tennessee in Mobile Bay. And despite the quiz tonight, uh, he was not only the first ever to be promoted to full admiral, that is four-star rank in the Confederate Navy, he was in fact the only one to be so promoted. Raphael Semmes was promoted to rear admiral, and after he made his way back to uh, uh, Richmond in 1865 following his defeat off Cherbourg in the Alabama, he was also made a, an acting or brevet uh, brigadier general and participated in the retreat from Richmond to Appomattox, and he loved signing himself after the war as Raphael Semmes' admiral and general, uh, the only one who could make that particular claim. But uh, old Buck uh, was, in fact, uh, the only one to make full admiral in the Confederate Navy. And yet, despite that, his fame is considerably less than that of Raphael Semmes, I think, among most students of the war, or even for some, perhaps, less than James Waddell, who commanded the Shenandoah, the other famous Confederate raider, which was the last vessel to haul down its flag uh, in November of 1865. Should at some future trivia contest you be asked when the last surrender took place, not only was it not Appomattox and not Joe Johnson in North Carolina, not even Kirby Smith in Texas, I guess you could argue it was James Waddell in November of 1865 when he turned the Shenandoah over to British authorities, having made his way from the Pacific all the way across the Atlantic and back to Britain before hauling down his flag. But if Buchanan himself is remembered at all these days, it is often less for what he did than for what he did not do. Though he was the original commanding officer of the CSS Virginia, he was not on board that vessel when it fought its most famous duel against the Union ironclad monitor in Hampton Roads. And as for Mobile Bay, about which I'll have quite a bit more to say in a few minutes here, he was the guy who was waiting inside the bay when the Union monitor Tecumseh spectacularly blew up after hitting a mine or an infernal machine or a torpedo, provoking Farragut to damn the torpedoes as he steamed into the bay. In short, Buchanan's Civil War persona seems to be mainly that he provided, oh, something of a background uh, for the achievements of others. Now, that notion, I think, would absolutely have galled Buchanan to no end for as much as any officer of that war on either side, Franklin Buchanan lusted for glory, for fame, and for promotion. And he got one of the three, I suppose. He was not a particularly complicated man. In many ways, he was the very personification of a naval officer in the antebellum era that has often been described as wooden ships and iron men. Entering the Navy as a 15-year-old midshipman, in the last year of the War of 1812, he absorbed the values and the standards of his nautical society. He valued sobriety, he valued discipline, diligence, responsibility. To him, in fact, discipline was a virtue at least equivalent to any of the Ten Commandments. And he held himself to the same high professional standard that he expected and, in fact, even demanded of those who served under him. This commitment to high standards served him well in his naval career. By the time the Civil War broke out in 1861, he had been a naval officer for 45 years, nearly a lifetime in the 19th century. And his career had been marked by a number of noteworthy achievements. He had commanded ships at sea 
In two hostile environments against the Caribbean pirates and in the Mexican War, he had led landing parties in that war against Mexico twice, each time capturing an enemy fortress with troops that he personally led. He was the founding superintendent of the United States Naval Academy, which I might note is an exemplary educational institution, <laughs> where the superintendent's quarters, in fact, are still named for him, Buchanan House. He was the first American ever to set foot, officially at least, on the soil of Japan, where, as Matthew C. Perry's flag officer in that famous cruise that opened Japan to Western trade, he did most of the negotiating that made it possible for that treaty to be written and signed and accepted. In fact, those interested in elegant scenarios of historical causation, you can probably work out a sequence of events to blame him for Pearl Harbor. He was the first man to navigate a U.S. Navy warship up the Yangtze River, the first man to navigate a steamship of any kind up the Yangtze River, and negotiated with both the imperial government and the Taiping warlords in the 1850s. He was, however, not the first, not by a long shot, to pledge himself to the service of the Confederacy. When the Civil War broke out, Buchanan was the commanding officer, commandant, of the Washington Naval Yard. It was a, a good job uh, in the Navy, in fact, one of the plum jobs in all the Naval Service, and a testimony to the status he had achieved as one of the Navy's senior officers. But almost at once, Buchanan found himself in an agonizing quandary. He was, as we learned from the quiz, a Marylander by birth, and he was horrified when a few days after Fort Sumter, the 6th Massachusetts Regiment, in passing through Baltimore on its way to the national capital to secure it from a perceived threat from those rabble across the Potomac, uh, that 6th Massachusetts Regiment had to move from one train station to another to transit across town, was surrounded by a hostile mob that began arguing and shouting and then throwing things, and eventually shots rang out, and before it was all over, 12 were dead on the streets of Baltimore. The mood in the city was nothing short of hysterical. Newspapers screamed that the Federals were about to shell the city, and declaring that it was the duty of every Marylander to stand by his state, Franklin Buchanan resigned his commission. He did so in the full expectation that Maryland was about to secede from the Union and join the other 11 states that had already done so. But Maryland, of course, did not secede. And historians today will still argue about why it didn't. Some claim that Lincoln and Maryland Governor Thomas Hicks had made sure that it could not secede by placing troops in Baltimore and moving the legislature to Frederick in the western part of the state where Union sentiment was much stronger. But whatever the reason, Maryland remained in the Union. And Buchanan tried to get his resignation back, tried to recall it. Gideon Wells, who was Secretary of the Navy at the time, was not interested in Buchanan's second thoughts. He ordered that Buchanan's name be struck from the Navy list, as if Buchanan were somehow no longer worthy of holding a commission in the United States Navy. And typically, Buchanan saw himself as the victim in this scenario. How dare Wells imply that after 45 years of faithful service, that somehow Buchanan was no longer to be trusted with a commission. 
After nursing a grudge for about four months and bolstered by news of the Confederate victory at Bull Run, he decided, somewhat belatedly, to leave Maryland and go to Richmond, there to offer his service to someone who would appreciate him, the Confederate Navy Secretary Stephen Mallory. Now, before I discuss Buchanan's Confederate service, I probably should spend just a few minutes here talking about the Confederate Navy in general, because the circumstances of that service had a lot to do with Buchanan's success or lack thereof. And indeed, Civil War navies generally are a topic worth a minute or two of discussion here, for just as the Civil War was a watershed in land warfare, what with the widespread use of the mini-ball and the rifled musket, the railroad and the telegraph, all of those things that revolutionized warfare on land, so too was the Civil War a watershed in naval history. It marked the change from Buchanan's era of wooden ships and iron men to a new and vastly different age, an era of steam and steel, of armor and explosive shells, and of course, mines. And as such, it foreshadowed the warfare of the future, anonymous, impersonal, representing in a rather fundamental way the triumph of technology over personal heroism. I often speculate on the thought that my own students are much more likely to fire satellite-guided ordnance to a target over the horizon from a console deep within the bowels of a ship than they are ever likely to look at their enemy in the face. For Buchanan, this kind of revolution in warfare was not altogether a happy one, and I don't want to suggest that he was some kind of Luddite who opposed the new technology. Actually, he rather embraced it. He was a powerful advocate of bigger and better guns, more accurate guns, armor plates, steam propulsion. But in many other ways, he was also a throwback to the age, if not necessarily of wooden ships, then certainly of iron men. He was an old-fashioned, no-nonsense, lash-wielding disciplinarian who believed in his heart that the Navy began to go to hell when they abandoned the cat of nine tails in 1850. I might note in passing, I suspect there are a few graduates of the Naval Academy who still think so. What Buchanan regretted was not the new technology, but the weakening of the old discipline. Ah, for the days when the authority of a ship's captain was absolute, when recruiting consisted of dragging the jack tars out of the pubs and the taverns, when anyone who violated the time-tested laws of the sea could be triced up to a grating and whipped till the blood ran in the scuppers. Those were the good old days. <laughs> I don't mean to portray Buchanan as some kind of ogre. He loved his wife and his children. But like all of us, he was a product of his times. He held officers to a very high personal standard of conduct. But at the same time, he believed that sailors could be held to the task, mainly, if not exclusively, by the threat of physical punishment. In the end, however, Buchanan's greatest frustration would come not from his inability to apply the lash to reluctant sailors. It was in the nearly insurmountable difficulties presented by the Confederacy's lack of almost everything necessary to build a modern navy. In the first months of the war, the Union Navy began an enormous and indeed unprecedented expansion. 
from the 90 ships that existed, at least on paper, only about half of those were actually in active service, and only a total of eight were on service in home waters on the day Fort Sumter came under fire. That Navy expanded to nearly 700 warships by 1865. Now, nearly two-thirds of those ships were converted merchantmen, but the rest of them were purpose-built from the keel up, increasing the Navy by over 1,000% from 1861 to 1865, an expansion roughly equivalent to the Navy's growth from Pearl Harbor to VJ Day a half-century later, a century later. The Confederacy had no chance whatsoever of being able to match this kind of industrial productivity. It simply did not have the industrial or naval infrastructure to build a large and modern fleet. It did not have the shipyards, the smelters, the rope walks, ordnance factories, powder mills, and all the other elements of what constituted a mature industrial society in the mid-19th century. In part two, I think one of the problems the Confederacy had here is that it just simply did not care that much about things naval. For much of the war, Southern strategists assumed that the war would be won or lost on land, as indeed it was, and that spending scarce resources on a Navy was simply keeping those resources away from the Army. One example of this is the fact that Southern generals routinely looked upon naval service as a way to avoid conscription. And as a rule, they refused to let sailors who were swept up in the draft transfer to the naval service, even though the Confederacy had on the books a law that required them to do so. Given that the South could not compete with the North in sheer numbers at sea, Confederate Navy Secretary Stephen Mallory decided to overcome quantity with quality. As he explained it to his wife in a letter, his policy was to make ships so strong and invulnerable as would compensate for the inequality of numbers. In other words, he would arrange to build ships that by their very design could compete with or even overcome a whole squadron of traditional warships. And the first test of this policy was the construction, or rather the renovation, of the ironclad Virginia, built, as you know, on the hull of the partially burned wooden frigate Merrimack, southern architects had virtually recreated the vessel into something quite new, a casemated, iron-armored, little floating fort. When Buchanan arrived in Richmond after his five-month period of dilly-dallying, Mallory at first gave him a desk job. But as soon as the Virginia was ready for sea, he sent Buchanan to Norfolk to take command of it. The South had poured a disproportionate amount of its national treasure into this one ship, and Mallory wanted to give it to the one man that he thought could take best advantage of it. And justifying Mallory's faith in him, Buchanan took the Virginia out into Hampton Roads on her maiden voyage and immediately attacked and destroyed two Union wooden warships, one by ramming, one by gunfire. Though at the time it seemed only a harbinger of even greater achievements to come, this initial sortie of the Virginia would prove to be the single greatest success of the Confederate Navy in the Civil War. Buchanan, as it turns out, was wounded in the fight and had to give up command. 
But the Confederate Congress nevertheless promptly approved Mallory's recommendation that Buchanan be elevated immediately from the rank of captain to full admiral, first American on either side ever to bear that title. Buchanan's wound meant that he missed the dramatic, even the heroic and historic fight of the Virginia the next day against the little turreted monitor, which arrived overnight. Interestingly enough, it was less clear to contemporaries than it is to us now looking back that the monitor's arrival effectively neutralized the Virginia's offensive potential. Southerners continued to believe, or at least they continued to hope, that Buchanan's initial sortie had proved that their one ironclad could defeat a whole fleet of wooden warships and, if true, effectively eliminated Union naval superiority in that war. It's kind of interesting, if you look at the contemporary documents of the time, there are constant references by both sides to the David versus Goliath battle in Hampton Roads. From the Union perspective, David was the little monitor standing up to the gigantic Virginia. But from Confederate point of view, the one vessel the Confederacy had to put forward, the Virginia took on the entire Union fleet, and therefore it was the Virginia that deserved to be considered as David. As for Buchanan, wounded in that initial sortie against the two Union warships, he spent five more months now recuperating from the wound he'd received. But then, sporting his new admiral's uniform, he headed south to Mobile Bay, where his orders were to construct an entire squadron of ironclads and take on the Union Navy in the Gulf. He was certainly game enough for the challenge, but he faced obstacles that might have led a less passionate commander to throw in the towel. For the South's industrial infrastructure, as I mentioned, was simply too rudimentary to support such an ambitious construction program. The idea that the South could somehow simultaneously build from absolute scratch. These are not to be ships built on the hulls of other vessels, but built from raw materials. Four, five, six, half a dozen, a dozen ironclad warships, simply unrealistic. They could build the wooden frames. That was fairly easy. But getting the rolled iron plate to armor it or the engines to propel them through the water, these proved insurmountable. To begin with, there were only two mills in the Confederacy that could roll iron armor plate. One was the Trafalgar, excuse me, yeah, Trafalgar Iron Works in Richmond, and the other was the uh, Markham and Schofield Works in Atlanta. As an aside, I might mention that the existence of these two uh, rolling mills in the Confederacy um, influenced Confederate land strategy as well. Uh, there are those who suggest how unfortunate it was that the Confederacy moved its capital from uh, Montgomery, Alabama up to Richmond after Virginia seceded from the Union. And there are others that say, well, perhaps Joseph E. Johnson and subsequently John Bell Hood didn't necessarily need to defend Atlanta. But Richmond and Atlanta would have had to be defended in any case if for no other reason than for the existence of those two rolling mills. Since the South could not manufacture much iron plate, it sometimes used railroad iron as armor. But think about that for a minute. The South could hardly afford to tear up its railroads in order to obtain armor for its warships. One might easily argue that it needed its railroads more than it needed armor-clad warships. In fact, the Davis administration, seeking to make the South's rail system more efficient, often appropriated slave labor from planters to rip up lesser-used rail lines 
telling Congress and the state legislatures that it needed that iron for warships to defend their coast and then in fact use that iron to repair trunk lines in other parts of the Confederacy. State legislatures that approved ripping up railroads to defend their own coastlines would have balked at using that iron to, prepare, to repair a line in some other state. So the War Department lied to them. An interesting comment on the Confederacy's commitment to state rights, by the way. Given all of these difficulties, Buchanan's effort to construct an ironclad fleet in Mobile Bay faced so many practical obstacles that many would have given up as a lost cause from the outset. But hopeless or not, Buchanan immediately got to work. Despite his age, he was 63 now, which is certainly young in the 21st century, but in the 19th century was a bit long in the tooth. And despite the effect of the wounds he had received in the battle at Hampton Roads that compelled him to walk with a cane, he threw himself into the job with his characteristic enthusiasm. He fired off letters, all of these letters in the archives show he spent a lot of time at his desk writing letters complaining to others. Contractors and middlemen urging them to get on with the job. He wrote to Mallory, he wrote to Davis, he wrote to Congress, he wrote to the owners of the iron mills, he wrote to the contractors and the subcontractors. He drafted workers into the Confederate service and when they refused to work overtime he offered them up to the army as volunteers for the front lines which led them to conclude that maybe they could work overtime after all. He supervised every element of the work personally, but it was soon evident that while he might successfully drive his workers beyond what they at least thought was reasonable, timber and iron could not be bullied. There was only enough iron, only enough guns to complete one ironclad warship in Mobile Bay. I was reading a book recently that's just out, just came out last year, uh, by a guy named Dyer. Uh, Johns Hopkins University Press brought it out called Secret Yankees. Uh, I bring it up now because one of the arguments that Dyer makes is that Markham and Schofield were among the secret Yankees that he profiles, that is, individuals in Atlanta who secretly sided with the Confederacy. And Markham and Schofield, of course, are the owners of one of the two rolling mills in the Confederacy that can roll one-inch thick iron plate. And in this book, Dyer says that Markham and Schofield deliberately uh, underestimated the capability of their mill in order to uh, kind of subvert Buchanan's iron-clad construction program. I haven't been able to validate that yet, but it's an interesting speculation. The one vessel he could build and did build was the CSS Tennessee. It was a casemate ironclad, like the Virginia, with six guns and an iron ram in fact, it looked very much like the Virginia, kind of a smaller version of the Virginia. For some months, it was unclear that Buchanan could get even this one ship completed in time to meet Farragut's squadron, which he could see from the ramparts of Fort Morgan out there on the horizon, growing in strength almost daily. Not until May of 1864, almost a full year after he arrived, was the Tennessee ready for sea, and then Buchanan faced yet one more problem, one that might have broken the spirit of a lesser man. The Tennessee had been built in Selma, floated down the river to Mobile, and there at the Mobile docks it was armed and armored. Well, when you put, you know, two-inch armor plate or, or five layers of one-inch armor plate on the... Uh, on a ship and then put uh, some heavy guns on board. You know what that does to the draft of the ship? 
So it was all ready for sea there alongside the wharf in Mobile, but six miles down the bay, below the city, opposite the Dog River, which spills into the bay from the western shore, the water there shoaled to a depth of only eight feet at high tide. And the Tennessee, once the five inches of armor and all the guns were on board, drew 13 feet. Yeah. How could he get her over the bar? Well, the answer to this turns out to be camels. Now, camels, for those of you not in the know of this uh, naval arcane uh, method here, camels are simply lighters that you tie alongside. You actually bolt them or strap them alongside a vessel when fully loaded, and then you offload whatever you're using as ballast, sand, stone, whatever it might be, water, you dump it over the side, and as they gain buoyancy, strapped to the main, they lift that vessel literally quite, quite out of the water. Uh, this is the traditional means for lessening the depth of a ship. It's a time-consuming process, but what else could Buchanan do but give it a try? So he did. He had these built and strapped alongside. They were filled with sand, and men got in and shoveled all the sand out, and by the time they had it all done, it raised the draft of the Tennessee by 12 inches. So he built some new ones, designed them himself. They're designed to fit underneath the hull of the ship, specially built and constructed, watertight so they could, they could actually be uh, attached, submerged while full of water. Then the water would be pumped out and it would lift the Tennessee up even further. By now, a lot of his subordinate officers thought this is not going to work. He had to kind of, you know, drive them to keep it to work. And just as they were just about finished, ready to be attached, a fire in the Navy Yard destroyed them and they had to start over again. But they did work. They were rebuilt, strapped alongside, the water was pumped out, and it lifted the Tennessee right up out of the water. And looking kind of like a, uh, forgotten what one of the descriptions the authors used, like a water bug on stilts. It kind of crept carefully down over the Dog River bar. The uh, camels were reflooded. Tennessee settled back to its natural depth. And there he had it, a fully armed and armored iron casemated warship ready to contest Mobile Bay with the enemy, quite literally in the nick of time. It was the last day of May, 1864. Now, characteristically, Buchanan's first reaction, once he had this, was to attack, to steal out in the dark of night and assail Farragut's blockade ships. The odds, obviously, would be against him, but the Confederacy, he would argue, faced long odds everywhere. And Buchanan hoped to compensate for the odds by stealth, by surprise, and the stout walls of his ironclad casemate. But as dusk turned into full dark, the wind freshened and the pilots, the civilian contracted pilots on board, told him that the seas were now too rough out in the Gulf for the Tennessee to manage. And so reluctantly, Buchanan ordered the crew to stand down. The next morning, it was clear and pleasant. Buchanan decided he would try again. That night, after supper on board, the crew topped off the Tennessee's bunkers with coal, and Buchanan ordered the ship ready for action. But as he passed the order to the engine room, and the reverberation of the engines grew louder, and the throbbing in the ship could be felt, the ship didn't move. Reverse, same result. Forward, same result. Realization soon dawned that it was aground. This time Buchanan was not going to wait another day. 
Just past 4 a.m. when the rising tide finally lifted the Tennessee off the sandbar, Buchanan ordered his fleet to get underway. But by this time, and by the time the Tennessee reached the ship channel and considered going out into the Gulf, it was full light, 8 o'clock. No stealth was possible now. And as described by an artillery officer who was watching from the ramparts of the fort, the little squadron then steamed slowly down the bay, disdaining longer concealment and heading for the channel as if going out. The Yanks were in line of battle outside the bar and seeming not at all intimidated. And at that critical moment, Buchanan reassessed his position. Without surprise, the obvious disparity in numbers was daunting, and that, combined with the uncertainty of the Tennessee's stability in the relatively open waters of the Gulf of Mexico, a sortie in broad daylight seemed little more than a forlorn hope. He concluded that despite the high expectations in Richmond, as well as those of his immediate audience watching from the ramparts of the fort, discretion was here by far the better part of valor. And it may have been the most uncharacteristic decision of his professional career to decide to stop and drop anchor. Instead of going out to attack the enemy, he would wait inside Mobile Bay for the enemy to attack him. The rest of the summer passed relatively quietly. Lee in Virginia fended off Grant's hammer blows. Johnston and Sherman in Georgia danced that red clay minuet southward toward Atlanta, and the Federal fleet off Mobile continued to grow. The number of ships in the blockading squadron increased almost weekly, from 13 to 17 to 20. And to Buchanan, it was evident that his old messmate, from when they were both midshipmen together, was getting ready for something. What was he waiting for? The answer, as it turned out, was monitors. Farragut knew that Buchanan had at least one ironclad warship. He believed he had at least three or more, and he was unwilling to run into the bay unless the Navy Department could supply him, that is Farragut, with some ironclads of his own. The first of them arrived in late July, and a week later, two more. Buchanan could see them from the ramparts of Fort Morgan. Finally, on 1 August, those enemy ships began to send down their upper masts, striking them below. You get rid of some of the impedimenta uh, in the top hamper of warships before you're going into battle. And it was clear to all that a federal attack was imminent. At a few minutes past 6 o'clock in the morning on the 5th of August, Buchanan was awakened by the ship's quartermaster, presented him with compliments of the officer of the deck, and informed him that the enemy fleet was getting underway. Instantly awake, he made his way to the pilot house, and from there he could see for himself that the enemy ships were on the move, black smoke pouring from their stacks as they steamed purposely toward the ship channel off Fort Morgan. And Buchanan ordered his own vessel to get underway as well. Now, as was the custom with imminent action in those simpler days, I suppose, Buchanan mustered his crew to give them a speech. Now, men, he said, the enemy is coming in, and I want you to do your duty. And you shall not have it said when you leave this vessel that you were not near enough to the enemy, for I will meet them, and you can fight them alongside their own ships, 
And if I fall, lay me to one side and go on with the fight and never mind me, but whip and sink the Yankees or fight until you sink yourselves, but do not surrender. Fairly typical pre-battle speech in those days. I handed out a map, or some of my friends here at the head table handed out maps to you, uh, of Mobile Bay and the battle here. The, note the north arrow. It's actually, if you're holding it on the side, you're actually looking uh, from um, east to west, I guess. But if you hold it on end, you can actually see the, uh, the true north arrow in the middle of the map indicating top and bottom here. As the Tennessee rounded that headland from behind Fort Morgan and took position at the northern end of the ship channel, sort of to block Farragut's route as he was coming in, Farragut, excuse me, Buchanan got a pretty good look at Farragut's fleet as it was coming in. It was, a, it was a bright and clear morning, a gentle haze that turned the sky kind of a milky white. The sea was smooth, very little wind. As Buchanan peered from the slit in the Tennessee's pilot house, he could see the Federal ships advancing in two columns. The column to the left was led by a monitor with other monitors in line behind it. And though Buchanan could not have known it, that lead monitor was the USS Tecumseh. And Farragut had deliberately placed it at the head of the column because it carried two gigantic 15-inch guns in its armored turret, each capable of firing a 440-pound shell. And its specific mission was to engage and sink the Tennessee. Beyond this column and slightly behind the line of monitors was a second column of wooden warships, including Farragut's flagship, the Hartford, which was second in line. Farragut had asked to lead the column in, but had been convinced by his subordinates that some other ship should take the lead and he should proceed second in line. That would have fateful consequences, of course. On shore, the gunners in Fort Morgan were firing slowly and deliberately at the approaching enemy. Shell splashes were already erupting around the Federal ships, which were returning fire, the white smoke from their broadsides beginning to obscure their formation. But for his part, Buchanan intended to hold his fire until the last possible moment. He wanted to have the greatest amount of impact of that first full broadside. And as he watched the steady approach of the enemy fleet, the bow of the lead monitor turned slightly to port, aiming its bow directly at the Tennessee with the evident intention of ramming her. The gunners on the Tennessee adjusted their sights as the monitor approached. Do not fire, Buchanan told them, until the ships are in actual contact. And the range slowly closed as those few on the Tennessee who had a vantage point watched. Then, suddenly and unexpectedly, the bow of the Tecumseh heaved up out of the water, the thump of an underwater explosion reaching the ears of the observers a few moments later. The Union monitor turned over onto its port side, its bow plunged downward, and the stern rose up from the sea, its bronze propeller still spinning, and it shot down like an arrow. The whole thing took about 20 seconds. Ninety-three men went to the bottom with it, and there was nothing left in the roiling, bubbling water except a handful of survivors trying to stay afloat. At least one of the torpedoes had proved appallingly successful. Viewers of this spectacle were temporarily stunned. Dr. Conrad, who was the Tennessee's surgeon, recalled there was a dead silence on board the Tennessee. The men 
peered through the portholes at the awful catastrophe and spoke to each other only in low whispers. Though Buchanan could not have guessed it from the smoke-obscured vision available to him from the pilot house on board the Tennessee, this was the moment when Farragut took things in hand. As the lead federal frigate, which was the Brooklyn, in the column of wooden ships, backed down to avoid the mines that he could see in the water in front of him, ordering first all stop and then half astern while the lead ship in the column begins to back down. You can imagine the circumstance that creates. You're in a line ahead column in a narrow ship channel. If the ship in front is backing down, the whole thing could become a disaster. At once, Farragut had to act with decisiveness and he had to act immediately. He ordered the helm over and he passed the lead ship, the Brooklyn, on its unengaged side directly into the minefield. And the captain on board the Brooklyn yelled across to him, don't you realize there are mine, there are torpedoes in the water ahead? And Farragut, of course, at this moment is reputed to have answered back, damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead. We were talking earlier uh, before dinner. I always wondered what inflection he had in his voice when he said this, you know. Was it, damn, the torpedoes? Uh, don't know. Uh, according to testimony after the fact, sailors on board Farragut's ship could actually hear the mines moored to the bottom, the mines coming alongside, and could hear the primers snapping on those mines, but none of them detonated, either because they'd been contaminated by salt water or faulty engineering, who knows why, luck, probably the best explanation. In any case, Farragut, plus all the ships who followed him into the bay, made it safely through the minefield and into Mobile Bay. He had passed through the gauntlet. Now it was Buchanan's turn. He ordered his flag captain to get up a full head of steam and aim the Tennessee directly for the Hartford, Farragut's ship, which was now leading the Federal Squadron. The problem with this was that the Tennessee, being a heavy, armored, casemated warship with clunky old engineering uh, that had been salvaged from a river steamer and transported by flat car across the Confederacy, that engineering plant could not get the Tennessee up to more than about five knots. When you're charging in an enemy ship hoping to ram him and you can go no better than five knots, you're probably not going to get there. Two and a half years earlier, when Farragut had commanded the Virginia in the Battle of Hampton Roads, he had rammed and sunk the Cumberland with relatively, rel relative ease because the Cumberland had been at anchor. But Farragut's squadron was moving, and a ship underway has little to fear from a ram that can only make five knots. As the Tennessee closed the range to the Hartford, Farragut's vessel simply sped out of the way, while gunners on both sides fired a volley at one another. Buchanan ordered the Tennessee to execute a slow turn and tried to ram the next ship through, but the result was the same. He could not collide with any of these swifter Union warships, wooden though they may be. Each time, however, they did fire broadsides at one another, and he was gratified, Buchanan was gratified, to see that most of the Federal shot literally bounced off the side of the Tennessee's iron casemate. One sailor on the Brooklyn noted that our shells didn't seem to have any more effect on her than a bullet on the hide of an alligator. One by one, the Federal warships passed into the harbor and into the bay. Buchanan broke off the action and ordered the Tennessee back to its anchorage off Fort Morgan. That's where he loops back, you can see in the drawing there. As his ungainly vessel steamed slowly back to its anchorage, Buchanan ordered an inspection of the damage 
and the news was gratifying. Though the exterior accoutrements, the smokestack, the boat davits, the hand railing, all that stuff was all shot away, the armored casemate was undamaged. The engines were sound. There were no casualties. Because the Tennessee had gone into battle before the hands could be fed, Buchanan ordered the crew to go to breakfast, and while they ate, he assessed his circumstances, stumping up and down the deck, deep in thought. He could still see the enemy fleet, consisting of three ironclad monitors and 14 armed steamers, dropping anchor about four miles away, well beyond the range of the guns of Fort Morgan. Only Buchanan's Tennessee was still in a position to renew the contest. Should he? He had failed to prevent the enemy's entry into the bay. What was his responsibility now? Years later, Buchanan told a fellow officer that during those critical moments, he was recalling the fate of the CSS Virginia in Hampton Roads. After its fight with the Monitor, the Virginia had remained inactively in port until it had to be destroyed by its own crew, an event that led, by the way, to the court-martial of its commanding officer. Unwilling that the Tennessee should share that fate, to be trapped, as Buchanan put it, like a rat in a hole, he decided it would be better to go down gloriously than simply passively await the outcome. He decided to, and this is quoting from his report, to renew the attack with the hope of sinking some of them with our prow, that is, by ramming. If ramming was his tactic, he probably would have been better served to wait till nightfall, catch them at anchor, and by surprise. But another factor at work here was his recollection of the long and frustrating summer between May and August, all the time he had spent waiting for Farragut to make up his mind to come in. All the local papers had been filled with questions about why is Admiral Buchanan not doing more? Well, he has no excuse now. There's the enemy fleet four miles away. On a clear day, with nothing in between, what excuse does he have now not to engage the enemy? Very likely in Buchanan's mind, there was no excuse that an honorable gentleman could accept for not renewing the action. He turned to his flag captain and ordered him to get the Tennessee underway. Follow them up, Johnston, one officer recalled him saying. We can't let them get off that easy. As the Tennessee moved up the bay, you see the track line heading into the fleet. His intentions became obvious to every man on board and a, a murmur ran along the deck. One crewman muttered, the old admiral has not had his fight out yet. He is heading for that big fleet. He will get his fill of it. Admiral, he asked. I am, sir, Buchanan replied. Turning away, the surgeon muttered, somewhat under his breath, I imagine, will never come out of their hole. And overhearing their remark, Buchanan rounded on him. That's my lookout, sir. Out in the federal anchorage, among all those clustered ships, lookouts saw the Tennessee moving in their direction. Farragut was surprised. He didn't believe that Buchanan would renew the action so soon. But he ordered his own vessels to clear for action and directed them to concentrate on trying to ram the ironclads since their guns seemed to have little effect. He ordered his own flag captain to aim the Hartford directly at the approaching vessel. Buchanan, too, sought out the opposing flagship. Like two jousters in some medieval tournament. These two vessels now are steaming directly at each other, bow to bow. The Tennessee at four knots, the Hartford at 10 knots. At a combined speed of 14, it took about 15 minutes for the two to cover the four miles that separated them. Meanwhile, all the other Federal ships were also closing 
on the Tennessee. The ships of the Federal Squadron circled the Tennessee like a pack of dogs that had cornered a fox, and they took turns trying to run her down. Farragut had actually ordered his ship's captains to try to run their vessels up over the top of the casemate, run it up onto the bow or the stern of the ship, and force it underwater. You might not be able to punch a hole in it, but maybe you can ride up on it and force it down underwater. As they did so, they fired their guns at point-blank range into the Tennessee's casemate. The range was so close that some crew members on board the Tennessee were actually burned by bits of wadding and chunks of powder blasted in through the gun ports. Others fell wounded to small arms fire as men on the Federal ships aimed their rifles and pistols at those narrow openings. Men on both sides screamed insults at one another as they worked. Swept up in the fight, they used any weapon to hand. Sailors on the Lackawanna threw a spittoon and a holy stone at the Tennessee. A sailor on the Tennessee leaned out a gun port and stabbed a Federal sailor with a bayonet. That's close action. All this time, the Tennessee's guns were firing as fast as they could be loaded. Buchanan left the maneuvering of the ship to his flag captain, Johnston, while he exercised personal supervision over the gun deck. The sound, imagine what that's like, the sound of those guns exploding inside this enclosed area. It's two feet thick of wood covered by five inches of iron plate, completely surrounded. No air is moving. It's mobile in August. It's about 140 degrees inside that casemate, and these explosions are going off inside. And at the same time, 440-pound shells are impacting the outside of that casemate while you're working. The sulfuric smell of the white smoke, the heat of the engines, the temperature at 140 degrees, it must have seemed like a nautical version of hell itself. All this time, Buchanan had been attempting to con his ship toward Farragut's Hartford twice thrown off his course when other ships rammed him and threw him off course. Each time they steadied back to close on the Hartford, which was now within close range. The two ships closed on one another bow to bow, but at the last second, Johnston, without Buchanan's approval, put the helm over just slightly so that instead of hitting bow to bow, which probably would have sunk both ships, they actually met just off center and scraped past one another as they moved, literally with the hulls touching. The Hartford carried 12 guns in each broadside, and at this range they could hardly miss. All 12 shells, however, glanced off that armored casemate. For its part, the Tennessee had only five operational guns and only three that would fire to port, and two of them malfunctioned, so they got off a total of one shot. But that one shot exploded on the Hartford's berth deck, killing five men and wounding eight. Farragut's flag captain, who was Percival Drayton, Interestingly enough, born in South Carolina, but fighting for the Union Navy, and now fighting against a man, he and Farragut, both born in the South and now fighting for the North, now fighting with a man who was born in the North and is fighting for the South. Percival Drayton later claimed that as the two ships slid past one another, he saw Buchanan, he spotted him through an open gun port, saw his face, and overcome by fury, he threw his binoculars at him, <laughs> screaming, you infernal traitor. This is a post-war reminiscence. Take it for whatever you may. Once the Hartford slipped past, one of the Federal monitors crept up next to the side of the Tennessee. Very likely it was the Manhattan, which was a sister ship of the Tecumseh. 
remember, carrying two 15-inch guns in its armored turret. And peering from one of the Tennessee's gun ports, Lieutenant Arthur Wharton watched in mingled awe and terror as, in his words, a slowly revolving turret revealed the cavernous depth of a mammoth gun only yards away. Can you imagine with that? I hear the turret is turning slowly toward you, and as it comes around into view, a 15-inch gun, well, that's a caliber of about that size, about six yards from your face. Stand clear the port side, he hollered. I guess so. <laughs> and a moment later, a huge concussion struck the casemate as a 440-pound bolt impacted against the casemate and opened a hole in the side of the Tennessee. This was the only shot fired that day that actually penetrated the armor, proving that the Tennessee was not invulnerable after all. In addition to the Manhattan, the double-turreted Chickasaw also pounded the Tennessee's casemate at close range. In less than an hour, the Chickasaw fired 52 shells into the Tennessee at a distance her commander estimated to be from 10 to 50 yards. Buchanan could not return fire, even though he was literally surrounded by targets. One gun port had jammed shut. The primers were regularly misfiring on the other five. He called for a party of workmen to try to unjam that one stuck gun port. Two of them held an iron bar over the bolt that was bent, while another hit it with a sledgehammer. And Buchanan was standing there personally supervising this effort when one of those shells from the Chickasaw hit the bolt that the men were holding in place on the outside of the casemate. The men holding the bolt were split into pieces and died instantly. Buchanan was struck by flying debris and fell to the deck. His left leg, his one good leg, was broken in a compound fracture and bent out at an impossible angle. Immediately, the cry went up on the gun deck that the admiral was hit. And though badly wounded, Buchanan evinced his characteristic stoicism, remember, wooden ships and iron men, by propping himself up against the bulkhead and asking for reports of the battle. When his flag captain reported, Buchanan told him, well, Johnston, they have got me again. You'll have to look out for her now. It's your fight. But it was already a forlorn hope, and Johnston knew it. The fusillade of enemy shells had severed the steering chains on the Tennessee so that it could not maneuver. The smokestack had been so badly riddled they couldn't get up any steam in the engine plant. The ship couldn't move, it couldn't maneuver, it couldn't shoot. It had become a passive target absorbing enemy punishment. The situation spoke for itself. Do the best you can, Buchanan told Johnston, and when all is done, you may surrender. Well, Johnston wasted little time. <laughs> he lowered the Confederate flag, but realizing in the midst of battle that might be ambiguous, it could after all have been shot away, he tied his handkerchief to a, an oar and stuck it up through the grating and waved it about, and the firing finally stopped. Buchanan became a prisoner of war. Wounded as he was, unable to walk, some feared for his life, he was taken first to Key West and then to Fort Lafayette in New York Harbor, a prison that was reserved only for the most notorious of rebels. Exchanged after seven months in March of 1865, note the date, March 65, he returned to Mobile just in time to witness the final collapse of the Confederacy in April. Taken prisoner again, he was released a few weeks later when the war itself came to an end. Buchanan was as defiant in defeat as he was in the midst of battle, so crippled that he had to walk with two canes. A 65-year-old was still not ready to retire. 
Besides having lost his pension with his resignation, he needed the money. He served for a while with an insurance company in Mobile, then became president of what was then called the Maryland Agricultural College, in which is now the University of Maryland. But true to his combative, confrontational nature, he immediately fired half of the faculty and got in a fight with the board of the trustees. And when they refused to back him as fulsomely as he believed they should, he quit. He died in 1874, quietly, in bed, at his Eastern Shore, Maryland home, appropriately called The Rest. He was a man who had believed all his life that honorable persons could chart their way, their way safely through the rocks and shoals of daily life by clinging to the high standards and by displaying the kind of determination that would prevent missteps. What he found out was that life is filled with ambiguities, where the pole star of duty doesn't always illuminate a single, clear, brightly lit path. His decision to leave the U.S. Navy, almost instantly regretted, was one example of that. His decision to go south and fight for the Confederacy may have been another. Though he never expressed a single word of regret about that decision, once he made the plunge, he did not second-guess himself. He gave everything he had to his new cause and was proud all his life that he had been a Confederate admiral. Thank you very much. Thank you. Questions? Chuck tells me I can take some questions. No promises that I'll have any answers, but yeah, Larry. I'd like to, for you to talk about the uh, brother, James Buchanan, and the relationship. <laughs> uh, Franklin Buchanan uh, may have been a distant, distant, distant cousin to President James Buchanan. Um, he claimed at the time there was no relationship. Now, he did have a brother whose first name was driven it right out of my mind. Say it again? I don't think so, no. Um, I've forgotten his first name, but he did have a brother on board the Congress. Uh, he was a naval officer, actually he was what was known as a paymaster. Uh, he wore a naval uniform, went to sea with the fleet, had served a decade or more with the fleet um, before the war, but had remained loyal to the Union in 1861 and was, as fate would have it, on board the Congress in Hampton Roads in 1862 when Buchanan first sortied with the, uh, with the Merrimack, Virginia. And Buchanan was very worried that anyone on board, remember he waited four months before he pledged himself to the Confederacy, was very worried that anyone on board, or in fact anyone in the Confederacy, might think that he was giving less than his full commitment to his new cause. So when he bypassed the Congress and focused his intention on the Cumberland in that first battle, he feared that they would say, oh, well, he bypassed the Congress because his brother was on board. But once the Cumberland was sunk, he steamed around and focused his attention on the Congress and could not ram it because the Congress had moved into shoal water. So he stood off from the Congress and shelled it until it surrendered. Flag came down. There, the ship has surrendered. Uh, we are in command of the situation. He called for a junior officer to go on board the Congress and accept the surrender of the ship. But being in shoal water meant that it was very close to the land. And on land were all these army guys. Now, I've made no comments tonight about West Point, and I want you to admire my restraint in that respect. <laughs> but these army guys had no sense of honor whatsoever. You know, it didn't matter to them that this ship was a surrendered prize of war. They saw a Confederate ship coming up to the, to the Congress to accept surrender. They opened fire on it. 
And Buchanan thought that was dirty pool. That's a dirty trick. How dare you do that? This is when he grabbed a gun from the ship's uh, weapons locker, went up on board to shoot back at them with his shoulder rifle. Well, here's a rule of thumb I pass on my midshipmen. If you're in an armored casemate, don't go up on top to shoot back, right? That's when he got wounded. But, but having been wounded, he ordered his uh, gunners to keep firing on the Congress, never mind that it had surrendered, because they, ref you know, they refused to abide by the rules of war. What do you expect, after all, of Yankees? He ordered them to continue firing that ship until it was in flames. And he pounded that vessel all through the evening and well into the night until it was full dark when it finally exploded in a giant fireball. And when it did and the news was reported to him down in his cabin where he was nursing his, his wound, he simply muttered under his breath, my brother was on that ship. Now, as far as he knew, uh, he didn't know whether his brother had made it safely to shore or, or, or had been killed in the fight. Uh, not until much later did he discover that his brother had, in fact, survived the fight, made it safely to shore. And when Franklin Buchanan was in Fort Lafayette in New York Harbor, his brother came to visit him uh, in prison, and they apparently had a quite convivial conversation and, and were uh, reconciled after the war was over. But I still can't remember his name. Well, it doesn't matter. <laughs> yes? Was, was Fort Morgan completely uh, unable to, to, to shell any of these ships? Um, well, he was unable to sink any of them. Now, Raimundo Luraghi, who is an Italian scholar who wrote a book called The Confederate Navy that came out about two and a half, three years ago, uh, has studied all the ordnance involved in the Battle of Mobile, and he really thinks that what sunk the Tecumseh was not an underwater mine, but shell fire from Fort Morgan. I disagree with that, but unless that did sink it, the, the shell fire from Fort Morgan, while it did some damage, did not do enough damage to destroy any of those federal warships. I want to mention, just to remind you, I mentioned at the beginning of my talk how the Civil War was, was kind of a pivot point in the development of naval warfare. Uh, in the decade prior to the American Civil War, ships were primarily wooden, driven by sail, firing iron balls out of smoothbore guns. By the time the Civil War was over, ships were being built with, with iron hulls and iron armor, firing exploding projectiles from rifled barrels. Uh, this was a technological revolution that changed warfare dramatically. And that technological revolution changed the balance of power between forts and ships. I tell my students, if it's the 1830s and you're placing a bet in Las Vegas between uh, a fort on shore and a ship afloat, bet on the fort, right? Because forts don't sink. I mean, there's a real advantage to being in a fort. You can have bigger guns. You've got a stable firing platform. If you're in a ship, you know, you're made out of wood. You know, that's not as good as stone. And there's lots of reasons why you'd bet on the fort. In 1880, 1870, you might want to bet on the ship. A ship under steam can keep under constant movement, firing explosive shells, stone masonry, who cares? Uh, so ships by 1864, by the time of the Battle of Mobile Bay, were able to stand up to, uh, to shore fortifications, and very seldom in the Civil War do you find a case where a shore fortification was able to drive off a, a well-led and well-appointed uh, Union squadron. Fort Fisher did it once, but not twice. Charleston did it once. Uh, in fact, Charleston survived until the end of the war. Uh, but I think the peculiar geographical circumstances of Charleston Harbor speak to that. But the short answer to your question is, yeah, the gunners at Fort Morgan and at Fort Gaines across the other side of the, uh, of the entryway in, into Mobile Bay simply could not have the kind of impact, could not by themselves have defended Mobile Bay without the presence of an active naval fleet. 
And I think the Civil War is kind of the, one of the turning points in warfare in that particular balance of power. Yes, sir. Were they perhaps using rifle cannons on any of the ships? Uh, they were. Um, not all of the ships had all rifled guns, but most of the best ships did. Um, um, Buchanan's own ship had uh, six-inch rifled guns, Brooke rifles, uh, that were made, uh, designed at least, by Brooke, um, another first name I can't remember, at Selma, um, and put on board. He had some seven-inch rifles as well in the bow and the stern. The 15-inch uh, guns that the Union was using were rifled as well. So there were rifled, rifled ordnance on most of the ironclad ships in the Civil War. They were firing projectiles. They had both kinds. They had explosive shells, and they had something called a bolt. Now, a bolt is designed to penetrate it. In other words, if you iron explosive shells, it was just going to detonate on impact. Or if you're within close range, remember they're firing at 10 yards range. Many explosive shells, the way it's designed, the flash of the explosion works its way around the shell, ignites the fuse, and the fuse burns while it's on its way to the target. Well, if the target's 10 yards away, that's not going to do you much good. So what they fired at close range was something called a bolt, which is more like an iron ball, but it's oblong in shape. And the idea is that the metallurgy is designed that the, the outer shell of it will melt back and it will penetrate through the, uh, through the armor casemate. And at least once it did do that. So this technology, as I say, is in, in, uh, in the middle of a, a revolution, even as the war is going on. Yes, sir. Uh, yeah, they did actually. They uh, they didn't just put the mines in and leave them there. They put them in and constantly renewed them and checked on them. But the problem is, how do you check on a mine to see if it's working? You know, you, you <laughs> poke, poke. You know, I, I'm not going to volunteer for that job personally. Um, the the mines the mines that were there had not been there all that long. But mines, you know, you look at uh, Scharf, uh, I don't know if you know J. Thomas Scharf's book on the Confederate Navy, an old two-volume work, first published in the 1880s and now back in print again, has some drawings of these things. They really look like uh, barrel kegs, uh, you know, that have been waterproofed, and then they put some sort of detonating device. Some were detonated by a, on shore, you know, have a wire run ashore, and you'd actually twist a, a detonator to set it off. Uh, others were, were, uh, were contact, you'd actually have to bump into it. Uh, they didn't have anything sophisticated today like a magnet mine or anything like that, which are fairly common now. Uh, and probably, I'm going to guess at this number, 80% of them failed to work. One of the most notorious examples of that is when uh, DuPont attacked Charleston Harbor in uh, April of 1863. He anchored his flagship, the New Ironsides, directly over a Confederate mine. Uh, the biggest one they had that was an electrical mine, and the Confederates couldn't believe their luck. Look where he stopped. And they went over and turned the knob a hundred times and couldn't make it go off. He sat anchored there all day, and it never did go off. Mines failed far more often than they worked, even if you carefully watched them. They just weren't that sophisticated yet. Um, not that day. Now, prior to that, he had studied the map carefully and thought I might be able to get out of the bay and work my way back through Mississippi Sound and then hence down to New Orleans. He actually had this kind of pie-in-the-sky imagination that he could somehow liberate New Orleans from the enemy if he could get himself into the Mississippi River. Uh, but I think this was mostly a pipe dream. He wouldn't have left Mobile Bay once the enemy was inside because I think he would have felt that as a man of honor that was abandoning his post. Farragut's assignment 
was to close Mobile Bay to blockade runners. And as long as Farragut had ships inside Mobile Bay, unmolested by Buchanan, he achieved that goal. He didn't have to take the city of Mobile to close it. In fact, he wouldn't take it for many more months. But as long as he occupied Mobile Bay, it was closed to blockade runners, and Farragut had achieved his strategic objective. Buchanan's job, as he understood it, was to take that away from him. Uh, so he had thought about doing something like that earlier, but not on the day of the battle. Um, I don't know a lot about it. Um, Fort Powell, that particular entrance apparently was so shallow and silted up that it wasn't useful, even by uh, blockade runners. Even the, the shallow draft uh, blockade runners, specially designed to run in mostly from Havana, couldn't use that entrance. And so Fort Powell was, had pretty much become a backwater, as far as I know. So uh, I don't know a great deal about it. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard that argument. I don't think it's true because what happened is Farragut could land troops, if you look at the map again, on that spit of land behind Fort Morgan, and he could close off Fort Morgan from supplies just as Fort Morgan could close him off. Now, who can last longer? You know, that's, that's, I don't know how long that game would be played. It's a possibility. It would have made life difficult for Farragut to stay within the bay if he couldn't be resupplied. Can you bring resupplies past Fort Morgan and Fort Gaines? Can you bring resupplies in past Fort Powell? Uh, maybe, maybe not. I, I'm not sure how that would work out. Sir, you had a question. Um, forces were landed behind both forts. The idea was that this was supposed to be a cooperative operation. In fact, the way this was originally put together, this was supposed to be part of Grant's overall national scheme for breaking the Confederacy. He was going to have uh, Meade's army, accompanied by Grant, attack in Virginia. Butler would come up by the back door to the Bermuda Hundred. We know how that worked out. Uh, Sherman would attack Johnson in Georgia. And the other, oh, and uh, of course our old friend uh, uh, Franz Siegel would come up the Shenandoah Valley. And then from the bottom into the, what Winston Churchill, I suppose, would call the soft underbelly of the Confederacy, up would come an army with Farragut. It was supposed to be Banks' army. Well, Banks wasn't there. We know what happened to Banks. Banks got sucked off into this Red River expedition, and he was gone. So there was supposed to be a whole Union Army cooperating with him and then advance up the Tombigbee and the Alabama rivers into the heart of the Confederacy. None of that happened, but he did have with him a small force, a small Army force that was landed behind Fort Gaines, and another subsequently would be landed behind Fort Morgan. And their idea was they would cut off those two forts from supply and, and sap their way forward uh, until the forts were surrounded and capitulated. Okay, good question. Uh, Congress, the question was why wasn't Buchanan made an admiral in the Union Navy at the beginning of the war? Uh, the Congress of the United States um, doesn't like to create, or didn't certainly in the 19th century, I guess that's no longer true, obviously. In the 19th century, like to create a lot of high-ranking officers. The idea was that the Army you know, you can have generals in the army because the army is a reflection of American society. We, we believe in the Minuteman, the volunteer, grasping his musket from over the mantelpiece and rushing to Lexington Green to defend home and hearth from the invading redcoats. So that the army is a certain reflection of American society itself. But navies, wait a minute, what are navies used for? Navies are used to oppress other peoples. We all know that's why the Royal Navy exists, is to, to tax our tea and other such ugly things. So Congress had a tradition that no American would ever hold a rank in the Navy higher than that of captain. And in fact, no one did. When the Civil War broke out, captain was the highest rank you could obtain in the United States Navy, and that's what Buchanan was. He was one of a dozen or so individuals who had made the rank of captain. He had one of the plum jobs, commandant of the Washington Navy Yard. He would undoubtedly have been given a squadron and an immediate designation of what was then known as a flag officer. 
Not clear exactly what a flag officer was. The idea was army generals were lording it over navy captains as if kind of I'm a general and you're a captain. And, and in order to get rid of that nonsense, they started calling the fleet commanders flag officers. But Congress did not authorize the creation of the rank of rear admiral until about halfway through the war. And the first person ever to get one was Farragut. Farragut, you could argue, is the first American admiral. That's why I said in my speech, Buchanan is the first American ever to bear the title of admiral. But uh, his old messmate, uh, Farragut, was the first American admiral, rear admiral at the time. And we did not create the rank of full admiral, the rank that Buchanan held in the Confederate Navy, until, anybody know? A little trivia contest of our own here. Anybody know who the first four-star American admiral was? No? It was Dewey, George Dewey. In, in, uh, in congressional thanks for his victory at Manila Bay. So uh, Congress just had a sort of an antipathy to the whole idea of admirals. They they're sort of uh, seem rather aristocratic and threatening, and we don't want any. But the other thing is that Buchanan resigned his commission uh, in April um, within days of Fort Sumter. You know, had he waited, certainly he would have been given an important command, and I suspect would have uh, continued to serve the Union Navy. But he was a man who acted on instinct and from his gut. And he said, I quit. I can't do it. And then changed his mind. Too late. Sorry, can't do it. Sir, then you. Just, uh, just a quick question. The Hartford today must be the largest naval vessel since its stern board and entryway are here in Chicago. Pipe rail is a Decatur trusted in Washington. Any other parts around? Actually, I, I can beat you on that. According to midshipmen, the longest ship in the Navy is the USS Maine. Uh, the, the hull of which is in Havana Harbor and the main mast of which is on the grounds of the U.S. Naval Academy. So I, I don't know if there are other parts of the Hartford around is the answer to your question, but the Hartford and the Maine, I don't know which is longer. We'd have to get a map out. Yes, sir. Uh, two questions, if I may. Wasn't Commodore a higher rank than Captain? Yes, but Commodore was an honorific rank. Commodore was not... During the Civil War, it became a rank, but Commodore, if, if you, the way it works is, if you have a squadron of ships, three or four ships, and they're all commanded by captains, and they're all at sea operating together, they all look carefully at their date of rank to find out who's senior, and whoever the senior guy is, he gets to call himself Commodore and raise the broad pennant. A blue pennant would, would fly from the mast, and that gave him the right to give orders to the other captains in the squadron. But his rank is still captain, even though his, his honorific position is that of Commodore. Second part of the same question, wasn't Uriah P. Levy a Commodore and supposedly responsible for the cessation of flogging in the Navy? Yes, I think, well, he was one of several who was responsible. Uriah Levy, one of the, the only, I believe, Jewish officer in the Navy at the time, um, put up with a lot of crap, as you can imagine, uh, given that uh, characteristic. But he was one of the leaders in the movement in the 1850s to eliminate flogging. Not one of Buchanan's favorite fellow officers, by the way. Yes, sir. Yeah, quite. Oh, on Union ironclads. No, no. Quite a bit of damage on the wooden warships in Farragut's fleet. Uh, the, the battle casualties were quite significant. There was a large butcher's bill, as they called it in those days, from that battle, and a lot of physical damage on board the wooden warships, but nothing substantive to any of the Union ironclads. The biggest gun that, uh, that Buchanan could fire was a six-inch rifled brook which was a pretty good shell. I mean, it, it exploding on board the Hartford, as for example that one did, uh, you could do serious damage. But uh, no, nothing to the Union ironclads. They survived it unscathed. You want a second crack at me? Sure, go ahead. Yeah, uh, Farragut was, was not a particularly good loser. 
Um, when Union officers came on board the Tennessee uh, and came down below deck, the first two to arrive, by the way, were a couple of enlisted men. You can imagine how that was. They jumped on board. Let's get a souvenir. What can we pick up? And they rushed down below decks and found Buchanan down there and tried to take his sword away from him. And, and he wasn't going to give it up. You know, he's got two broken legs. He's bleeding, you know, and, and uh, his aide actually knocked one of them down. And then finally an officer arrived, arrested the two sailors. And, and said, uh, you know, I'm a representative of uh, Admiral Farragut. And he said, all right, I, I surrender my sword to Admiral Farragut. And he said, well, sir, uh, could we take you on board the Hartford where we can give you better care? W would you like to see Admiral Farragut? And Buchanan said something like, I don't claim to be any particular friend of his. Uh, kind of a snotty little remark, you know. I think he was just in a bad mood because he, he had lost. But interestingly enough, Farragut did have, well, I guess that's understandable. Farragut did have a good opinion of Buchanan. When Buchanan was taken prisoner, Farragut, and we've got the letters, said, uh, you know, I want special care taken of this man. He was, you know, he gave uh, nearly half century service to his country. And for that, if, if for no other reason, we, uh, we owe him a debt of honor and, and obligation. And, and Farragut uh, was uh, a principal in, try, in arranging Buchanan's eventual uh, exchange as well. Uh, so Farragut apparently uh, continued to be something of an admirer of uh, Buchanan even after the battle. I don't know if Buchanan ever got over his kind of sour grapes response to that. Yes, sir. Do you know if Pat Buchanan is descended? <laughs> <laughs> you know. <laughs> I wrote a book about Patrick Claiborne. I'll give myself a plug here. Those of you who haven't had a chance to buy any of these wonderful books, please rush to your store and immediately buy it. I wrote a book about Pat, uh, Patrick Claiborne, a uh, Confederate officer. Uh, and I wrote a book about Franklin Buchanan. I was talking on the phone with somebody, and uh, I was saying, well, I'm going to give a talk on Pat Buchanan. I got them, the two crossed and got into big trouble for that. As far as I know, not. You'll have to ask Pat to get an answer to that question. And on that note, I guess we'll, we'll call it a night.